today on CityCast Denver. It's Pride Month, and we're taking a look at that complicated spot where our religious and LGBTQ plus communities intersect. There's not one church in the state of Colorado that averages over 2,000 in attendance on a Sunday morning that is open and affirming, not one. Pastor Paula Stone Williams of Longmont is a member of the transgender community. And she's got a new book out this week about her life pre and post transition and what it's taught her about gender. The chapters on gender equity uh, or inequity were the easiest to write because I do have a unique perspective of having lived life in both genders. And the differences are, in fact, massive. Today is Wednesday, June 2nd, 2021. I'm Paul Caroli, and this is CityCast Denver. Let's take a look at the news. Looks like the rain is over for a while. Today, we're back to sunny skies with a high just shy of 80 degrees. The state of Colorado is slowly lifting more and more COVID restrictions. Yesterday, an order went into effect lifting the cap on indoor gatherings. So if you're looking to have 500 of your closest friends over for brunch, you no longer need to clear it with the state health department. Oh, and speaking of large indoor gatherings, tonight at Ball Arena, we've got game two of the Avalanche's second round series against the Vegas Golden Knights. These were the two best teams in the league during the regular season, and the Avs won game one in a blowout. So now is definitely the time to tune in and see how the Knights respond. Or should I say now is the time to spend the first period combing the internet for a usable stream and hope the score isn't too lopsided by the time you can finally watch. Aren't these local TV contracts fun? So for today's story, I want to bring in producer Alexandra McMahon to share a little bit about her hometown. Alexandra? Yeah. Hey, thanks, Paul. So I grew up just 60 miles south in Colorado Springs, which is the second largest city in the state and happens to be a hotspot for conservative evangelical Christianity. I'm talking focus on the family, mega churches like New Life, a church that people would travel to from across the country to see former pastor Ted Haggard speak in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure, I've heard that name. Yeah. Yeah. And as you can imagine, that would be a complicated place to grow up if you're gay. And I am. So I think that's why when I first heard about a post-evangelical trans pastor in Longmont, I was so drawn to her story. Paula Stone Williams was doing a TED Talk a couple years ago, and I got assigned to do a story on it. I was the CEO of a large religious nonprofit, the host of a national television show. I preached in megachurches. I was a successful, well-educated, white American male. So what did that feel like? Well, hearing someone from that world you know, this anti-gay evangelical world, talk about how she risked everything, her family, her career, her reputation, to come out as trans. I think, I think it really spoke to me. Paula's memoir came out yesterday. It's called, As a Woman, What I Learned About Power, Sex, and the Patriarchy After I Transitioned. And before her scheduled appearance on Good Morning America this Friday, Alexandra caught up with her earlier this week. Hi, Paula. Thanks for joining us on CityCast. It's so good to be with you today. 
So let's just jump right in. Um, in the book, you describe both Paul and Paula. Can you tell me a little bit about each person? Sure. And actually, I'm kind of glad you asked it that way because no one ever asks it that way. There's actually a chapter in the memoir, Dying Before Dying, where I talk about how much discontinuity there is between my life as Paul and my life as Paula. My son was the first one to indicate that because I said early on, I'm the same person I always was. And he vehemently said, no, you are not. And I realized the longer I live as Paula, that I'm really a very different person. As Paul, I think I was a typical, um, clueless, entitled, white male, privileged. I grew up in a upper middle class family, received a wonderful education. And then I decided to go into ministry primarily because I knew if I followed my heart's desire, which was to go into broadcasting, that I probably would have to deal with the fact that I'd known since I was three or four that I was transgender. And I was using religion as a way to control that because I knew my evangelical world would reject me if I ever came out. So I chose to go to a Christian college instead and then seminary and then rose pretty fast through the ranks of leadership in my denomination and really had a lot of um, power in that world. So yeah, that's the world that I crafted for myself until it was no longer tenable. Post-transition has been a markedly different life. Now I am living authentically. And I do believe the call toward authenticity is sacred and holy and for the greater good. Yeah. And after you transitioned, what were some of the major differences you noticed in terms of how men are treated in the world versus how women are treated in the world? The chapters on gender equity uh, or inequity were the easiest to write because I do have a unique perspective of having lived life in both genders, and the differences are, in fact, massive. I noticed it on the first day I ever flew as Paula. I got on the plane, and there was stuff in my seat, so I picked it up and put my stuff down, and a guy said, that's my stuff. And I said, well, okay, but it's in my seat. So I'll be happy to hold your stuff for you until you find your seat. He said, lady, that is my seat. I said, yeah, actually, it's not. It's my seat. One deep. But like I said, I'll be happy to hold your stuff until you find your seat. He said, lady, I don't know what I have to tell you. That is my seat. I said, yeah, actually, it's not. It's my seat. One deep. At which point, the guy behind me said, lady, would you take your effing argument elsewhere so I can get on the plane? I was stunned. I'd never been treated like that in my life. Flight attendant takes our boarding passes, says to the guy, sir, you're in 1C. She's in 1D. I put his stuff down in 1C. No, I'm sorry. No, thank you. No, nothing. And of course, it's Mr. Would you take your effing argument elsewhere? Who's right next to me in 1F? Mm -hmm. I can tell you exactly what would have happened when I was a guy. I would have said, excuse me, I believe that's my seat. And immediately, The guy would not have challenged me. He would have looked at his boarding pass and would have said, oh, I'm sorry. I know because it happened scores of times. So I have something to compare it to. Uh, I'm a pastoral counselor. I have a doctorate in psychology, in, in counseling. I'm a pastor of a church. You know, I've done a lot of things throughout my life, but people just assume I can only be competent at one specific thing. That I run into all the time. Hmm. 
So I want to I want to go into more of the the religion side. Um, I, I wonder if you could talk about how your views changed about the LGBTQ community as a whole after you transitioned. Um, you know, especially coming from that very conservative evangelical background. Being a trans person and knowing it from the time I was three or four, I was always aware that being transgender was not a theological issue. It's never mentioned in the Bible at all, though conveniently, 84% of evangelicals currently believe that identifying as a gender other than the one identified in your birth certificate is a mortal sin that will send you to hell. I will say again, it is not mentioned in the Bible at all. So I already was very warm toward the trans community. And by the time I was in my 20s, the church's position on the LGB world just didn't make sense to me. It, it didn't pass the common sense test. I had a lot of friends who were gay, and it was like, these people were as psychologically healthy or unhealthy as I am. I don't understand why the church would behave that way. But I thought it was okay to just be quiet on the subject, to not speak out against it, but also to not speak up for it. And post-transition, I've realized the damage that has done. And now, standing outside of evangelicalism, I find it's really fascinating that the two social issues they've chosen to take a stand on are a woman's right to choose and LGBTQ plus issues. Now, if you are a man and you're in charge of churches, and you want to choose some kind of a social issue for which to stand, how convenient would it be to choose something that would cost you absolutely nothing to hold that position? I mean, you don't have a uterus, and only 3% of you are gay, so yeah, those are two positions we can hold that cost us absolutely nothing. Now, on the other hand, if we chose the positions of, oh, let's say, systemic racism or socioeconomic injustice, oh, yeah, now that actually might cost me something personally. And so, no, we're not going to choose those issues. It just seems awfully convenient to me. So I really blew it. And now that I stand outside the evangelical world, I look at that evangelical bubble, which is getting tighter and tighter and tighter. We got to take care of our own. And they've also decided where no naturally an enemy exists, they'll create one. And right now it's the LGBTQ plus community, particularly the trans community, that are the enemies they have created. Hmm. You know, you went on and, and co-founded this very progressive church in Longmont, Left Hand. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, as we're talking about the evangelical uh, reach and how, especially in Colorado, with Colorado Springs being this um, kind of evangelical capital, you know, I grew up down there. I grew up right down the road from Focus on the Family and New Life Church, and that made it very hard for me to come out, um, you know, not until I left Colorado Springs. And I'm just wondering, coming into Colorado's LGBTQ community here, what was your experience? Did it feel very welcoming or, or was it hard? I mean, I know Longmont is very different from Colorado Springs. Uh, and yet Longmont historically has been a more conservative town, a, mm. the more conservative city in Boulder County, although that has shifted a lot in the 15 years I've been in the state. I'm certainly the front range and more and more we're seeing the majority of this state becoming more open and the truth is, when it comes to the LGBTQ community, and particularly the trans world, Denver's a good place to be. 
the greater Denver, northern Colorado and Denver are a very good place to be. The resources here are wonderful. Um, Anschutz and all of the, the medical care dispensed from there is wonderful for the trans community. At the same time, the largest church in Boulder County, Flatirons Church, uh, is a church that's not supportive of the LGBTQ plus community. And one of the problems with megachurches are not LGBTQ affirming. They won't tell you that because they realize the culture's moved on on that issue. And I just wish they'd be clear about it. I wish they'd be honest about it because people go and think they are, and then they want to move into leadership and find out they can't. Hmm. There's not one church in the state of Colorado that averages over 2,000 in attendance on a Sunday morning that is open and affirming, not one. Wow. So going back to your book a little bit, how much do you talk about your your family and, and the feelings of your family, and also yourself after you transitioned? What was that like? When I was recording my audiobook, every single time I finished a chapter about my family, I just had to sob. When you come out as trans, you explode the family narrative. And it is profoundly difficult for your family. And Kathy and I had like an amazing therapist, marriage therapist, and we were both therapists and And so I just asked him, I said, Mike, how many couples are willing to work this hard? He did not hesitate. He said 1%. And I said, how many couples get this far in working through their stuff? And again, he didn't hesitate. He said 1%. And then he added, which is what makes this so tragic because you're a lesbian and Kathy is not. And I think that was the point that we realized that we both are called to live authentically and that our marriage would not survive. I know we still practice together in RLT Pathways. We're still both psychotherapists, but we no longer live together. We're no longer together. And for her and for my son, things are irrevocably changed in ways that are still palpable. You know, I think we thought maybe it'd take five years for our family to find a new normal. And we were talking about it and we said, yeah, we were kind of naive to think it was five. It's going to be 10. And right now we're eight in in the process. So it still is something that we're that we're dealing with. That sounds unbelievably hard. And that kind of leads me to my last question, which, you know, we're about to head into Pride Month. There's a lot of young people out there who are probably struggling with who they are and, you know, hearing your story and hearing how it is it's a hard road. And um, what would you what would you tell them? Um, to kind of encourage them towards this authenticity that you talk about? Secrets that are held inside have the capacity to harm us greatly. And one of the biggest causes of suicidal ideation among transgender or gender non-binary people is the internalization of transphobia. There are a lot of voices out there saying that we're bad. And I think the most important thing for these people to know is this is who you've been since the moment you were born. There's nothing wrong with you. And find someone to whom you can tell your story who will have a sympathetic ear. And you intuitively know who that is. It may well not be your family. For me, it was a college professor. And that one element, just bringing 
into the ether the words that I was trans itself was somewhat healing. Well, Paula, thank you so, so much. It's my pleasure to be with you. That's all for us today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute and tell a friend about us, rate the show wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. And hey, I hope you have a really good day. That would be nice, though, if we had a little cat cameo at the end. <laughs>